Well, this morning we're going to worship God. Most of us are online today, but it doesn't change the reality. Our God is supreme and will reign supreme over all the earth. There has never been a time like this when faith has been so critical for the season that we're in. I encourage you, whether you're in your living room or bedroom, I say engage with a full heart today because our nation needs your faith. Uh, The nation of Canada, the nation where you're watching from, if you're in Ireland, the UK, India, Taiwan, China today, the release of faith is more important than it's ever been. So to this morning, join with us in releasing that hope. Father, in Jesus' name, we say the glory of your presence will cover the earth. It will not be stopped, and you will hold them in derision who mock your name. You will be exalted. Father, we say in Jesus' name, we know what the promise is. There is something coming that is better than we have ever seen. And we will not be discouraged. We will not come under the weight of hopelessness today. Rise up wherever you are. Rise up wherever you are. Shake off the dust. Be like Samson. You know, it says he shook himself when the Philistines were upon him. That means he... He threw off the restraints because there are invisible spiritual restraints that would keep you locked into something. Shake it off right now. Father, we say in Jesus' name, let there burst forth from your people in Canada, in Alberta, in Spruce Grove, in Parkland County, a hope, a vision, a dream of impending glory. No matter what the circumstances say, we pray in Jesus' name. Join us as we celebrate today, just as we've been prophesying this thing. I cannot tell you how important it is to hold on to the hope, to speak out of that hope. There has always been a lie, a heaviness, a deception that comes over people with a spirit of hopelessness. And it always says the same thing. And it's summarized in these words in Scripture. It asks a question. It says, where is the hope of His coming? Where is the promise of His coming? And it is a taunt. It is a suggestion that because there seems to be delay, therefore there's no good reason for you to hope. I want to tell you right now that as a believer, the very fact that you can close your eyes and begin to speak his name, Emmanuel, and that the presence of God comes to you right now, right where you are, right in the room, in the midst of your circumstances, in the difficulty of whatever situation you are, this is proof of his coming. This is the proof of the inevitability of the manifestation of the glory of the Lord. And so we defeat right now that lie. We defeat it right now. We say in Jesus' name, you cannot snuff out what we know to be true. He is with us. We say in Jesus' name, let hope arise in your house, in your heart. Let it stir right now. I want you to declare, I will not let go. I will not let go. I will not let go of the hope. I will not let go of the promise. He is with me. This is our job right now. As something is looking to come over the nations, we can, we can hold on. We can actually keep that light from being snuffed out. Even though your neighbors are coming under something, you are the hope. You are the light of hope for your neighborhood right now. Don't let go. Come on, let's continue to declare this. When we were singing earlier, 
I felt the distance of the horizon, and I was looking out intently on the horizon. God, where are you? God, where are you? What is happening in the Spirit? I wasn't understanding, and the Spirit of God said, turn around, turn around. And when I turned around, Jesus was standing right there. And as Jesus stood right there in the turnaround, the mighty hand of God reached through Jesus and reached through the belly of the man, and he pulled from the distance the word kingdom, and the word kingdom came close through the belly. So we prophesy a turnaround. We declare that God is closer over Canada than you think. And we say, in the living rooms across Canada, in the bedrooms across Canada, we declare and we decree, turn around. God is closer than you think. We say in Jesus' name, let hope spring anew. Many of you have been struggling with a sense of foreboding, heaviness, even on the verge of depression, hopelessness for sure. But I'm telling you, there's hope available in the promise of God. There's hope available in the promise of God. Just hold on to this right now. He said, every branch of me that bears fruit, I prune. And the purpose for the pruning is not to eliminate fruit, but to prepare for the next season, to prepare for a new harvest season. And we don't know and we don't always understand the pruning. And we may not like the pruning. But the enemy comes in the middle of the pruning and he says, that's it. That's the end for you. There's no more. It's done. It's over. You are locked out. You are locked down. How many of you have ever felt that when you were being disciplined as a young Christian? It's like, oh no, I've committed the unpardonable sin. I'm locked out. I'm I, I'm gone, I'm done, I don't know what I did, but I just feel so distant from God. But he wasn't very far at all. And what you thought, what the enemy tried to represent was an eternal break. Was a momentary distance for God to cultivate in you a depth of a cry, a depth of a desire that you didn't even know was possible. A yearning began to come out of you. So we declare, God, that all across the church in Canada and around the world, oh, God, that there would rise up, there would begin to surface in your people such a desperate, unyielding desire. Something that says, oh God, we have to have you. We need more of you. God is preparing a people that seek his face like no other generation. And it's talking about a fullness. It's talking about engaging parts of your heart that you never knew were not engaged, that you never knew how to engage. But there's something in his divine workmanship that prepares a heart that can seek him. And we say, yes, Lord. Bring up, bring up, bring up. Oh, spring up a well inside of me. Spring up a well inside of me. Spring up a well inside of me. Oh. You know, there's a prophetic picture. When we first started discovering the digital age and we, we began with fax machines and we began with online connections and we used to be able to have those connections, but they were, they were short-lived. They were momentary, and then if you were downloading too big of a file, that, that connection got broken and you lost, and you had to start all over. 
Well, that's what it's like when you were a young Christian. You know, you had those moments, you'd go to church, you'd feel like God's presence was there, and all of a sudden, you know, you got disconnected, and, and that was all hopeless. And But the technology of, of uh, the digital age began to get more stable, and that's just like your faith. Your capacity to know that God is with you, that God has not forsaken you, has been increasing. And it's creating a stable connection where you don't feel shaken every time something goes a little awry. You don't begin to think, oh no, that's the end of the world. You just know, hey, this is a momentary glitch. And they begin to become fewer and fewer because the spiritual connection that you have with God that is really contingent on your faith, not God's, that's getting more strong. It's getting more secure. It's getting more stable. I'm telling you, the connection that you have with God tomorrow is going to be better than you ever even knew was possible. Throw off the lie that you're going downhill, that everything's going downhill. There might be challenges. There might be difficulties. But it's unto something better. Father, in Jesus' name, we lay hold of the promise that says the light, the true light is already shining and the darkness is passing away. Come on, the Apostle Paul said that 2,000 years ago. The true light is already shining and the darkness is passing away. There has never been a brighter day than today. Oh, I know my Redeemer lives. Job said that in the most impossible situation. He said, listen, I know this. I know my Redeemer lives, and I'm not alone in this thing. I don't care what's happening. I'm not alone. This is the confession of faith that needs to come, not just out of these worshipers that are here, but right where you are. I know that I know that I know, that I know, declare it, type it in, share it out on your news feed. I know that I know, 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 that I know. In Jesus' name we say, let there be a sound of breakthrough across the nation of Canada. Let there be the sound of breakthrough. Let there be a cracking a sound heard in the households where spiritual darkness seems to have taken root. This morning, I'm going to share a few things here from God's Word. Hallelujah. Wow. Wow. Thank you, God. I'm not going to be too long this morning, but I'm going to share a couple of things. Uh, I want... I, I, I know that that sometimes it's hard to focus because you're not in the room. Maybe you've, you've got other things going on. Some of you might be baking or cooking or doing other things. But I, I challenge you to turn your heart to the Lord right now and to begin to lean into God for a word. Father, we pray right now. God, we need... Your word of hope. We need your word of hope today in Jesus' name. Thank you, God. Now, I've got a number of things I'd like to say, some, some uh, pictures I'd like to give you. And I don't have it all straight in my mind, in my heart today, because um, I, I want to try and connect some dots, if it's possible, for how God works in generations and with people, whether it's individuals or groups with groups of people. But God is interested in nations, and he calls nations, you know, sheep nations or goat nations. Nations, as a general rule, have designations, and God treats nations uh, despite, despite the fact that there might be in nations righteous ones there, there is still a requirement that God would treat groups of people in a collective fashion, and that is, that is pretty established in Scripture. And we begin with nations, that God deals 
with nations as whole groups. Furthermore, we see that God deals with cities similarly. I mean, if there was, if there's anything, any takeaway from the whole Sodom and Gomorrah picture, it's that that there is a uh, a judgment that can be made for or against a group of people on the jurisdictional level that is a corporate city. Uh, and so, and so we we see in those passages that famous passage where Abraham is interceding and he's saying, God, you know, and Abraham doesn't know. He doesn't know. Is there a chance that this can turn around? Now, he already knows God to be a God of mercy, a God who does not like to punish the righteous and the wicked. And so he understands that there are some level, there's a mathematical equation here that that can be had, that, that, that there's a certain number of people that that if there are these many righteous, God will be prone to spare them. And Abraham doesn't know where that line is. Now, we don't know. We can speculate. We, we don't know. Some have speculated 100,000 in these cities or, or possibly more. But the threshold, the numerical threshold that he starts at is 100. And he begins to say, you know, God, would you spare this whole city for the sake of 100 people? And, I mean, that whole story, is, it's, it's absolutely fascinating in one sense because we see that God goes right down to the number 10. He said, if there's 10, for 10, you know, you can do the math if you like to find out what percentage that is of 100,000 or so. It's not a lot. (laughs) It's not a lot. It is less, far less than 1% for sure. But right, I mean, it's, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a very small number. And, and yet God is willing to do that. So what that means for us is righteousness in a city, in a province, in a region, righteousness, people who are righteous, people who love God, people who seek the face of God, have an inordinate ability to represent a region before the throne of God. That, that the capacity for your voice to be multiplied many times in intercession through the righteousness of your life, through, through loving, loving what God loves, there's, there's a capacity for you to be influential in ways beyond your imagination. Which is a certain challenge, and, but that's not even what I wanted to talk about today. But the reality is, still we're, we're faced with this, this distinct situation where God deals with collective groups of people. And uh, when he deals with those collective groups of people, he measures them to, in a way to determine what they are deserving of. Whether they are deserving of mercy or deserving of something less than what is preferable. We'll leave it at that. So, now some people think, well, this is, uh, these are the, uh, these are the uh, aspirations, these are the desires, these are the functions of a, a punitive figure, a God of wrath, a God who is... Uh, uh, itching to hurt people. And I want to submit to you today that that's not the foundation that we come from. In fact, we know the opposite, that God does not rejoice in any evil, in any hardship, in any difficulty. But he does understand something. He does understand that sometimes we would rather be treated like a mule than like a person. And so there's these exhortations of Scripture that tell us, listen, don't be like this. Don't be... <clears throat> You know, don't act like the mule who is so non-responsive to intelligent thought, to intelligent exhortation, to encouragement. Don't be like the mule. The mule is like a brute beast. And we see that picture of the warnings of Scripture is that there are people, when they give themselves to darkness, they become literally like brute beasts, and we've seen that. And God, therefore, must deal with them like brute beasts, because there is no other option. Now, if you have a horse or a cow or, you know, animals have sometimes a magnificent capacity to respond to intelligent words and and whatnot, but by and large, you know, comparatively, the scale is, is very limited. 
But here's the reality is that God is saying to us, don't be like that. Don't allow yourself to be so desensitized to what is actually happening around you that the only thing that you can respond to are nudges from God because you can't see and you can't feel and you can't hear. And so you're like a blind person that's groping in the dark. He said, listen, I have planned better things for you, but the option is yours. And when God is speaking, he's speaking to nations, he's speaking to cities, he's speaking to people. And he's saying, listen, are there a people in the land of Canada who tremble at my word? Is there a collective corporate voice? Is there enough of a threshold of people that will cause God to deal with us, not as brute beasts? but as sons and daughters who are responsive to him. And you know what? We don't know what the magical formula is for, you know, what capacity of faith, what capacity of righteousness, what, what, are, the, what are the measurements God is making. But I'm telling you, I don't believe, not for a second, that God is ready to punish Canada. Not that it's not possible. I just believe that there is enough righteousness but I tell you what, we better, we better not be presumptuous. We better not think in terms of entitlement. Because, you know, God has decided that he's going to do certain things with the nation of Canada. And we have prophetic promises. But what we don't have is a definitive timeline. What we don't have, you know, when God gives prophetic words, he says, I'm going to do such and such and such and such. Well, it's kind of like you when you're on a, when you're on a, a, a highway and, you, and somebody points to you a mountaintop in, in the distance. You say, that's where we're going. Oh, that's great. I can see it. And, you know, the assumption that you can see it is that you are almost, therefore, on top of it. But as you know, anybody who's driven through the Rocky Mountains of North America or the Alps, the Swiss Alps, that what you see in a distance is not... It might be more remote than you know presently. And so there are, the, the, this is the point of prophetic promise. There is an intention of God to do a certain thing, and he's going to do that thing. But the question is, we don't know how many weaves, how many turns, how many ups and downs there are, how many hills, how many tunnels, how many forests, how many encumbrances geographically are between here and there. But we know the promise is real. And so I believe that we have the ability to hasten the promise as a nation. I believe we have the ability uh, to, to, to diminish the visibility of that promise and to increase it. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name. Father, that in Canada, men and women of faith would begin to be stirred anew. God, I believe that you have orchestrated the events of this season to give us an opportunity to focus on what is important. Father, I pray that we would have the utmost ability, Lord, to give ourselves to what's important in this season. Now, let me back up a little bit. A friend of mine, I'm going to try and weave something together here, and I don't know if it's totally going to work. I, I know kind of what I want to say, but it's not as clear. It's not like I'm explaining something to you that I already have all laid out and I understand and been through a thousand times. But there are things that we need to understand about this season that we're in as a nation. My friend, and I won't say his name online, but you probably know who he is. He gave a prophetic word a few years ago to the Canadian Prophetic Council. And when I first heard him say this word, I thought, I thought well, that's, that's an important warning. And it was an important warning because, you know, he's, and the word is, and I can't remember the words, the full words of it, but basically it was a warning. Listen, you need to, you need to get on board, Canada with the plan of God, because there is no guarantees that things are going to happen in your timeline or at your convenience, that there is always a requirement on the people of God. 
And I'm not talking about the nation as a whole, but largely those people that can have influence with God. We are dealing with God here as a nation. And when God calls a nation to arise into something, he's not calling the brute beasts to arise, the ones that are blind who cannot see. He's, he's making those responsible who already can see to a certain degree. And he's giving us an opportunity to see more clearly than we've ever seen before because, because his plan is, is that we would have more equity with God. And if you can track the trajectory of men and women of God down through the church history as, as people who have more or less equity with God. And we see this, that Moses had equity with God. That means he had an ability to turn the heart of God in a way that nobody else did. You remember that one of those prophets, I think it was uh, Jeremiah, he's interceding because saying, Lord God, don't do this thing. And he said, no, I'm not listening to you. He's like, what do you mean? I thought I thought I, I thought I was special. Well, you're not that special. And, and we need to understand this, that some people are more special than other people in God's book. And if that, dis, if that makes you depressed, then I, I encourage you to get up with the program and allow yourself to begin to be trained because you can be more special than you are right now. Uh, let me tell you, you can be more important to the kingdom of God and less important to the kingdom of God and you can be as close to these things as you want to be. You know, that's the scripture in James. It says, you know, if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. That means proximity to God, nearness to his plan. You know, to be, to have the ear of God is something that is available to you if you fulfill the requirements that are, that are possible. But basically, we see this snapshot down through church history of different people having different levels of equity with God. And the, the, the two that appear, other than Jesus, other than Jesus, obviously, but the two that seem to have the most equity are Samuel and Moses, because God says to the prophet who's interceding, even if, even if Jeremiah or Moses were here, Asking for me what you are asking, I wouldn't do it. What is that saying? <laughs> right? That's saying, listen, if anybody could turn my heart on this issue, it would be these two people, Moses or Samuel. If I would do it for are you are you saying that God does something he's unlikely to do because of the favor of men? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that God is a real person in this sense. He wants real relationship with real people. He wants real intimacy. And, and there is the possibility of us being the friend of God. And just knowing that you are saved and born again and going to heaven doesn't necessarily make you the friend of God. Man, we could talk about that. I, I love the passage where, where Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, no longer will I treat you as servants, but I call you friends. And I, I find it odd that, that, that Christians would just, you know, willy-nilly go to those passages. See, see, here it says in the Bible that we are friends. No, it doesn't. It says those guys were friends. It says those those 11 that remained and were faithful and walked with him through thick and thin, they received a designation that gave them a distinct equity with God. And even among them, we know that James and Peter had something more than the average. And we know that John was alone in a category of being the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so... So God is, this, is giving us this option to have power with the kingdom of heaven to dispense the, the judgments and the blessing of the kingdom of God. We can do that. And it's not enough to just be able to go to a scripture and say, well, look, God said we're friends. And I, I talk about, you know, and I know some, some people that makes you afraid. It makes you nervous. You think, well, well who can, where am I then? Well, you should fear. You, if you're not sure, you should wonder. You should want to know. You, and you can know. That's the thing. We, John says we can have boldness. We can have boldness at his appearing. 
He's saying, listen, this is not unavailable to you. But I tell you what, if you're not sure today, if you're looking at this broadcast and you're not even sure if you're going to heaven, I want to tell you, you can have assurance. I want to tell you that you can have assurance about your position in God, your role in God, your favor in God. And one of the great things that God has been doing with me is he's been awakening me to the fact that I don't have as much favor as I thought I did. Now, that's a little sobering sometimes, you know, because, I, and again, I, I'm, not, I'm not some unruly sinner, but I realize that there are subtleties to faith. There are subtleties to humility. There are subtleties to seeking God, to desiring him. Desire for God is an amazing thing. And so God is shaping us as a people. And he's shaping a people in the church of Canada. And I just, I just want to say, Father, we pray that you would have mercy today on the church of Canada. That you would have mercy upon a generation that does not know you. Father, that you would have mercy upon a generation who has not had the opportunity to be in your presence, to feel your love, to feel the warmth of your embrace, God. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Now, when this prophetic word was given, and it was a dire warning, and it's basically, it doesn't, here, let me me back up again. When God gives a dire warning, it doesn't nullify the promises, but it may distance them. Oh, when God has said he's going to do something, right, he, he, in your life, he may want to do that in your life and have every intention to do that in your life. But there may be circumstances in your life that will cause him to have to put that off to the generation of your children or your children's children. You know, David, I think, is an example of that. He wanted to build the house of God. And God said, well... I would love for that, and I put the promise inside of you, and there's some things I'd love to do through you, but, but there's too much blood now on your hands, David. And, uh, and part of that is because of your own sin, that your own sin caused a certain amount of bloodshed in the land, and now you are responsible for that bloodshed because even though you were a man after my own heart and you sought righteousness, you stumbled in a significant way and you murdered and, uh, and you caused something to come into the land that didn't need to come into the land. And it has caused circumstances. There's always a trickle-down effect. So he said, because of that, David, your, your son will have to build my house that you were appointed. I put the promise in your heart, and I wanted you to be a part of this, but I'm still going to do it, and the promise is still real, and the prophetic nuance that you felt when you were in my presence is genuine and authentic, but I'm not going to be able to do that now in your life. What are we saying? We're saying there is a fear of God that should come upon us as a generation. Not that we would be excluded from eternity. Not that we'd be excluded from the goodness of God. But that the things that God imagined he would pour out in our lifetime, in our day, in our season, and even through our very lives, he might have to put off. And I, that bothers me that that is a possibility. But I know that that is a possibility because I, I cannot deny the Scripture. And this was the effective warning that the nation of Canada that is appointed for the healing of nations might have its destiny suspended. And so we did these events, these battles for Canada. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I, I, I've been crying out to God for a, a kind of sensitivity because I'm thinking, I don't know what's going on right now in the inner sanctum, the inner courts of heaven. God hasn't summoned me to come up there and to hear what he's saying. It was the Godhead whispers the intention of eternity, eternal purpose. I, I don't get invited to that, but I'd like to know. I desperately want to know right now. But I know one thing is real is that there has been a pride. There has been such a profound pride in the Western world. And, you know, maybe you think, oh, we know that. We're, we're trying to get over it. Well, I don't know that we really know it. I don't think we really know it. Because when this warning was given, 
And uh, let me let me let me read this scripture because I, I think we need to understand something. I'm going to come back to the warning, but in Isaiah, and uh, I have a long history with this scripture, and there's an intertwining of this passage in Isaiah 25 with Canada's destiny and promise that God gave us back in 1996. But this is what it says. As we were gathered in Whistler seeking God for the destiny of the nation of Canada, God spoke to us this word through through a, a prophet. I can't remember who it was that the Lord brought it from, but it says, and, and in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He shall swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken it. Now, this, there's, a, there's an idea, there's a prophetic picture in here and it's this, that there are Blankets, veils that are laid over the nations. And he's talking specifically about one significant veil over the nations. I'm telling you right now, the, uh, the presumption of intelligent intellectuals of our day, and even maybe of our own lives, is this belief, this false notion that intelligence is all that is necessary to understand the world around you. And that intelligence ensures that you're not going to be deceived. And there's, there's nothing further from the truth. And I've, I've referenced this before, but when you go back to Nazi Germany, when you go back to the atrocities of that era where millions upon millions, I don't know, 20 million Russians alone were killed in World War II because of the evil that rose up out of Germany at that time. It wasn't the drug addicts. It wasn't the prostitutes. It wasn't the wife beaters. It wasn't the, the, the average alcoholic, the brawler in the nearby bar that was responsible for this insidious evil that cast a shadow over all of Europe and indeed the whole world. It was the intellectual elites of Germany at that time. People at the very forefront of academia. People at the very forefront of thinking human beings. People who thought themselves so infinitely higher than the barbarism of other generations. That they had somehow come into a finessed ability to navigate through the issues of knowledge. The understanding, the technology, the, uh, the engineering feats that were now possible told them that there was a level of brilliance upon them that was unmovable and unshakable. And it was these very ones that became corrupted in their thinking. It is these very ones that thought, no, we will not. We sit as a queen. We will not see evil or suffering of any kind. And this is the same boast of pride of any generation. It says, I will not see poverty. I will not see suffering. And I have been raised in this, this, this wake of prosperity, as most of you have. And we have seen the suffering of third world nations. And we have, in our own minds, given ourselves causes and reasons and justifications for why that happened there and not here. And I guarantee you, at the heart of the proud, uh, the proud thinking of man is a belief, when push comes to shove, a belief that is because we're just better. That at some level... We're better. Well, at some level, we just, that's because they're uneducated. That's be, and this is the secret boast of pride in the hearts of men in our civilization. 
It says, it says that, well, there's, there's reasons that make this thing a non-possibility for us. I want to tell you something. That when the prophetic word was given, that a veil of darkness could fall over Canada that would cause a generation or two of suffering, I immediately saw the kinds of transformative moments that saw the Iron Curtain raise up in the bulk of, of Asia and Eastern Europe, Russia, come under a veil of dark thinking. And we in the West, of course, became the champions of freedom, the champions of, of the rights, of uh, the right of assembly, the right of free speech, the right of freedom of conscience, the right of freedom of religion. And we at that time, we thought, you know, we, we are the pinnacle of civilized, non-barbaric thinking. And we are secure in this, pos- in, in this fact that there's no chance that that barbarism that was over there could ever come here. I'm telling you, I've been seeing it sneaking up. And I want to declare this, the only reason, the only reason that man has the ability to think clearly, to think objectively, to think in concrete fashion so that wisdom becomes the guardian of his footsteps. The only possibility is not human intelligence. It's not IQ. It is not uh, uh, education and academia. It is the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the only sustaining power that keeps us from stepping into darkness. That the pride of our nation, oh God, Oh, God, forgive the nation of Canada. Oh, God, and forgive us as a people that should know better, that have thought, no, there's no way. There is no way. There is anybody who ever thought that. There's no way. We are too refined. We are too advanced. We are too, no, it's, no, we, we, are, we are not prejudiced in Canada. We are not despicable in this fashion. We, have, we're, we treat our neighbors nicely. We're nice. God, forgive us. The veil. See, this is, this is the reality. The pride of man believes that he has the independent power of clear thought. The independent power, decision-making power, of objectivity to to look at the facts and to make a proper logical decision that ensures a prosperous future. I'm telling you, darkness takes advantage of presumption in the heart of man and brings a veil over the eyes of any man, any heart, no matter how intelligent. And we have been seeing the darkness creeping up, creeping up on the academia, it's particularly the academia of the Western world. We need light. We need something to come in. Father, we pray right now. You see, when that prophetic word was given, I thought, I thought, no, no. I mean, there was enough. I just, I just didn't want to believe it was possible. Not because I didn't think it was possible, but because I thought there, was, there must be sufficient prayer. There must have been sufficient faith. There must have been sufficient obedience on the part of the people of God for the years that I've been running the race here in Canada with other church fathers and mothers across this land, there must be enough equity in Canada that when God is appealed to, that we will transcend that magical threshold number equivalent to 10 in Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely there must be the equivalent the spiritual equivalent of 10 in the nation of Canada. Father, but what do you do when you're not sure? What do you do? 
right? We want to, I don't want to take any chances. If you've got a, a test you need to pass and you think, I'm pretty sure I'm going to make it. I got to get 70% to get across, you know, but I'm, you know, I, I better buckle down. I better study a little more. I better give myself. Well, God is trying to get us across an invisible threshold into something for the sake of not only our destinies, but the promise and the plan of God. And now God is not shaken. I mean, heaven is not worried about this because, because time is laid out like, like geography is laid out on the earth and God sees the end from the beginning. And he's already assured. He knows he's going to do this. He knows the things that are inevitable in time. What is not determined is the time that it's being done in. And that's the part where we can lose or we can gain for our generations. Oh, Father. And I'm, I'm sharing this not to create fear. I'm sharing this not to provoke you to unbelief, to provoke humility because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to those who believe that, you know what, my destiny is not assured. My obedience until it is complete is not guaranteed. Father, we, you know what, you think, but is it possible to be unsure and still be a Christian about some of these things? I mean, what about the Apostle Paul? Was it, well, he was sure of a lot of things, but you know what? He says, he says, he says I, I have not even apprehended. Apprehended what? He, he's talking about his own destiny. He's talking about running the race. He's talking about completing his course. He's talking about doing what's necessary for his destiny, his generation, to do what needs to be done. Now, and he already knew it was coming because Jesus had already said not one stone will be left upon another. So I don't know all the things that Paul understood that were still hanging in the balance. But there was something in him that even though he was un, uh, he was unafraid of going to hell, he was unafraid of losing his salvation, he was unafraid, he knew to be absent from the body is presence with, present with the Lord, but he's, he, in terms of destiny, in terms of the now, in terms of what I'm working out in this moment, there are things that I'm not clear about. Why do I say that? Because there is this presumption. There is this arrogance. There is this superficial version of faith that blindly says things it does not know and boasts about things it cannot be assured of. And that is the kind of pride that has crept into the church. People with little substance spouting slogans and prayers and statements that were reserved, a kind of favor that was reserved for a few and claiming those things as their own. God, see, see, there, there is a beauty in knowing your weakness. There is a beauty in knowing what is not sure and what you cannot be guaranteed of and living in the tension of leaning into the more for the sake of the fact that you do not know everything. And there's a liberation in that. There is something that makes God God and you incomplete humanity. And that's the, la- the way he likes it. He doesn't like it. See, the nature of pride is the pride puts itself where God alone should be. I mean, isn't that what the boast of Lucifer was? I will ascend the heights. I will sit in the most glorious place. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And though we might never use those exact words, the exhortation for us is this. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. So there's this 
potential for increments of veils to be upon nations. But the promise is, this is the promise that God is giving us. There's coming a full moment of revelation. There's coming a final curtain call where the veil is going to be pulled back and all creation will see clearly and will be no, will know as they are known. There is coming an ultimate unveiling, an ultimate clarity. That's the promise. But it's going to be achieved as a people in any given generation work out their faith with fear and trembling and lay hold of the, of the promises of God for their generation. It, it, it happens as any given people become responsible enough to own the journey that is theirs to own. And we are in the midst of that right now. And I believe, I have to believe, I have to, I have to summon the courage in my own heart that says, this significant moment that we are in right now with COVID, this significant moment where it appears like the measures of uh, oppression and darkness that have, have only been known where human rights, where freedoms of conscience and freedoms of religion and freedoms to make moral dictates according to your own heart were presently assumed to be eternal parts of the fabric of this nation as they are presently even now disappearing. I have to believe that it's only a wake-up call for a people who are called to do something in their generation, that God is making this moment possible for us to be shaken into an awakened state so that we can begin to realize our weakness and begin to seek him with a new kind of humility that he will respond to. I have to believe this. I have to believe that this is a moment where with newfound <laughs> humility, awareness that God, we are no better than our fathers, that we are no better than the generations come and gone before us. We are no better than any other people. God, that we are not deserving of more righteousness or more blessing than people of Rwanda or people of New Guinea or people of, uh, of Mexico or people of any other generation, any other nation, any other history, any other culture, that there's nothing about us that makes us special in and of ourselves, but it's only you and us being able through faith to appeal to your divine favor that we would say in Canada with a new found capacity of faith and humility, oh God, you alone rule. Your name is great. I believe that God is looking for a distinct kind of worship, a distinct kind of repentance, a distinct kind of humility in the earth that he will respond to. And that he, even as I said in the very beginning of this service, that God prunes the faith of his people so that they can touch more of him, not less. <laughs> this is my hope that right now, God is reaching into the Church of Canada to prune away the complacency of arrogance to cause there to be a new wave of faith, a new wave of a grabbing hold of the kingdom of heaven and saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me close with this one last thing. We know this passage in 2 Corinthians. Well, maybe I'll share a couple of the scriptures. I just remember there was another one here I was meaning to say because there's, there's hope and we want to close. We want to close with hope. But in 2 Chronicles 7.14, you know this very well. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves 
and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This is always the possibility for any people. And we like to imagine as a people that we've done this. We like to imagine that, well, you know what, we, we, did, we did the gatherings. We, we, we prayed and we, we did the St. Louis thing and we repented for the sins against the Jews and we repented for the sins against the First Nations. You know what, we, we may have done it, but there's only one being in the whole universe that can tell us whether we've accomplished the necessary level of, uh, of humility and contrition that's necessary to cross an invisible threshold we don't understand. And we can't with any confidence to say, well, I prayed the prayer. I said, I'm sorry. How many times do I have to say it? It's not about saying it. It's not about saying it twice or three times or four times or five times. There is a level of meaning it, of owning it. There is a level of things that move the hands of heaven. You know, it talks about the bowls being filled with incense, which is the prayers of the saints. The bowls, what does it take to to fill the bowls? Well, what what kind of arrogance in the heart of Christians says, well, I already prayed. I already prayed. That should be enough for God. Is that what you're saying? God should be satisfied. I already prayed. What does he want? I mean, who do you think we're negotiating with here? Satan? You think you're dealing, making deals with pastors or infrastructures of church? God is the one that determines whether we have crossed the line into fulfilling the requirement. He's the one. He says, I will heal your land. When? Who are we to say, we did that? I mean, can you see the arrogance? Can you see the pride, the presumption? Well, I... I said I was sorry. Have you ever done that with your kids who, who aren't sorry at all, but because they mouth the words, they feel like they have legally done what was required of them? And yet, you know, as a parent, obviously you have not, and you don't know what the word contrition means. Can you even spell it? God's looking at a church and saying, listen, turn from your wicked ways. And we're saying, what wicked ways? Okay, this is going to be a bigger job than I know. You don't even know what wicked ways are. Well, I thought, I thought the blood of Jesus covers us. Again, see, spiritual platitudes that, that are born of, a, of an immature faith, of a presumptuous disposition, that think the requirements of a holy God are easily fulfilled as though all we have to do is check boxes. And God is saying, turn, 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 turn. Father, we are contending that you would enable us to turn in Canada in a way we've never turned. Huh. My son Matthew told me, he said, you know, when I was... Before I began to drive, I was watching you driving, and I thought, well, this is easy. You either turn left or you turn right. He said, you know, sitting from the back seat, he thought, this is no, this is no problem. Driving's easy. You, I mean, all you do is you stop, you go, you turn you, you left or you turn right. He said, it wasn't until I got behind the wheel and realized that there was increments of turn. That, that, that it's not automatic. It's not a button you push and you make a perfect 90 degree turn. That you determine the speed at which turn and the amount of turning that's possible. Like, like hold, on, hold, on, hold on a minute. All of a sudden, there are, there are aspects to this I did not discern. That this is far more complex than I knew. Turn to me, says the Lord. And we've, we've thrown up prayers. We've thrown up intercession. And he's saying, no, you don't understand. I'm inviting you to a journey 
of repentance where you discover the increments of turning. That it's not always as straightforward as you think. That the fact is your heart doesn't even know how to turn. And it's more complex than saying the words, I turn. God, Lord, I declare today that there will be a church in Canada. And even though the prophet Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Father, there will be a people in this nation who discover how to turn, who discover and who will not relent and not stop until the land is healed. That, Father, we are not negotiating with some invisible figure, some data mining process, that we are, we are navigating the path of life with the true God who only alone knows the boundaries of holiness, the lines of righteousness. Oh, God, we say, Lord, we submit to you today. And we say, Lord, change our unruly hearts across the nation of, the nation of Canada. Change our unruly hearts. Come on, let's cry out to God.